Lead, lead, lead. What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called Now, and an activity called Work. Working Hours wants to record 1,000 loiners over the course of this, the most important decade in the history of the human species, and ask them what they do all day and hear how they feel about it. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. What did you want to be when you grew up? So when I was very, very small, um, when I was about five or six, I went and had my face painted under the dark arches. Mm. There used to be loads of little dolls and things down there. And I, yeah, used to have these glitter butterflies uh, put on my face by the lady down there. And so when I was very young, I wanted to be a professional face painter. Um, a career which I did not pursue, but if you were to ever ask any of my friends and family, what did I want to be? I wanted to be the, the face painter, like the nice face painting lady. Um, when I got a bit older, I have always had a keen interest in English and writing, and I think I fancied myself as a bit of a journalist at one point, uh, but never really pursued it. And yeah, in terms of from there to before I got into HR, I didn't really such have a direction. I think I was waiting for something to jump out at me. Mm. I had various jobs in um, customer service. I was a recruitment consultant for a number of years. So no real set direction. But yeah, face painter in answer to your question. <laughs> Did you paint any faces then? Were you practicing on your friends? No. <laughs> Honestly, um, all of these um, little aspirations of careers I've had over the years, I've put zero effort into it. Perhaps that's why it didn't turn out for me. Uh, you know, I don't even do my friends' makeup when they ask. I'm, uh, if I'm honest, not really got any artistic creativity in that way. So uh, probably don't get me to take your there, Simon. You're listening to Series 3, Episode 16, and to my guest, Rachel Fisher. This is another Zoom interview recorded on the 22nd of April, 2022. Hello, loves. Welcome back if you're a returner and welcome to you if you're new to the show. So we talk about all things work, leads and now, which obviously is in the past now, here in these interviews. And then I occasionally flap my gob and squawk about something in these intros. After last week's diatribe, I'm going to spare you from that again this week. And I'm going to get straight into the introduction. Rachel Fisher was born in and had lived in Leeds, other than the odd excursion away, up until February 2022. Now she's living and working in Malta, where she says it's beautiful, but she's missing Yorkshire puddings and a post-work pint of Kirkstall Brewery's Virtuous. Rachel is working as a HR business partner in the iGaming online gambling industry. She helps to create and bring an organization's people strategy slash agenda to life. Rachel says HR has a bit of a reputation of being the Grim Reaper or a Jobsworth profession, but that's absolutely not the case. She's been in the business of all things people for about eight or nine years, and she's seen everything from the utterly weird to the fabulous and wonderful along the way. This was recorded a while ago now, so the discussion is a bit more old school than some of the more recent interviews you've been hearing. Anyway, hope you enjoy it. I did. Okay, so what is it that you're doing now then? So I am now a HR business partner. Um, which basically means that um, when an organisation comes up with a aim and a strategy as to what it's going to do, I turn that into, okay, well, how are we going to get our people there? What are we going to do for our people to, mm -hmm. to bring them on that journey? I have been in HR since about 2014. Mm -hmm. um, I 
applied for a job in HR. I should probably shouldn't say this. Um, on a whim, so it was my manager at the time who said, because you worked in recruitment, some of those skills are transferable. And at the time I was working in um, a call centre in complaints for British Gas in Leeds. Okay. So my manager said to me, you should apply for this job. Actually, you know, I think, you know, you'd be really good at in HR. And mm. I didn't really know what HR was at the time. Um, anyway, and one thing led to another. And here I am eight years later, uh, you know, still in HR. Um, so, yeah. Yes. So where are you in HR? So right now I am speaking to you from uh, sunny Malta. I have only been here for two months, two and a half months. So I think I'm still okay to be on, on a Leeds podcast. I'm a, <laughs> still definitely a Leeds girl. So I'm working in the iGaming industry, which to you and me, it means, you know, online gambling, online poker, horse racing, all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing the HR for their international contact center and operations so there are people from all over the world here you know we've got italian teams and greek teams and all kinds of, of things so it's very different to what i mean stuff because whilst you've got all these different people who are all individual in their own way um, on top of that you've got all of these different sort of cultures that come from living in a certain country as well so it's fascinating stuff oh yeah. i think it is anyway <laughs> so is this is this the first time you've worked abroad Yes. I'd never been out of the UK for more than a week on holiday. Yeah. Um, and back in August last year, I was minding my own business on LinkedIn, as one does. Yeah. Um, and the job appeared and it's like, come and work in Malta, 300 days of sunshine. And uh, as a, a Leeds lass, I'm thinking, well, that sounds fantastic because it's freezing here. <laughs> um, and so here I am six months later. Very nice. So how are you finding it? Was there any culture shock or have you settled in quite easily or? Oh, so I didn't realize how many Britishisms, shall we say, there are here in Malta. Obviously, I know it was, you know, colonized at one point, but um, everyone drives on the left-hand side of the road. We've got English plugs, all signposts are in English and everybody speaks in English. Hmm. So in terms of, I don't want to sound super Brits abroad, uh, but in terms of it being a, an easy place to settle into, you know, so easy. Um, you know, it's help, It's obviously helpful that there isn't that language barrier there. So things like getting a residency permit or renting an apartment is so much easier because you don't have to, yeah. to wade your way through all of that. Yeah. And it, I guess it wouldn't have been affected by Brexit. Are they EU members? They are. Um, so uh, things such as sorting residency permits, obviously there's been some more challenges there than there would have been because I'm kept yeah. like as a third country rather than part of the EU. Yeah. Um, there is things such as getting things delivered and sent from overseas. Um, there's all kinds of VAT and customs and all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff. Um, but other, you know, other than that day to day things that are fairly sort of as I would have expected. So I've not come across as many barriers as it could have been. Mm-hmm. Cool. But let's let's start with what you what you're doing now. So sort of on a day to day basis. So I guess are you in for this particular project then just getting everybody in to hire for this company? That's kind of the impression I got from what you said that you've so, like come in to get a whole bunch of people. So I'm in here on a permanent basis and what I do is I deal with everything from when they step through the door, so somebody else recruits them. Yep. And I deal with anything that could happen from when they step through the door to when they leave. And by that, I mean, as in leave the organization. Mm-hmm. So if there are things to do with employee engagement or if Jimmy hits Timmy 
or if Jimmy doesn't rock up for work or um, Jimmy's got COVID. So I'll keep referring to a fictional character, Jim Biscuit, who's an absolute <laughs> liability in the workplace. He's got every disease going and caused every kind of disciplinary event. Um, things like um, salary reviews or performance issues or, um, you know, career mapping, all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't do the hiring, but I am involved in the firing. Right. Um, so it gives me a little bit of a reputation as being the Grim Reaper, you know, when HR comes wandering along. It's probably not for anything fun, um, which is a misconception that I'm always trying to challenge because I do get involved in some nice conversations, mm. not just awful ones. So, yeah, so everything other than the recruitment. So while I do have, you know, I do have a, an oversight of it because obviously if people are not in, then we've got gaps and then therefore, you know, it causes stress on the department. But yeah, everything other than the hiring, I'm your gal. Cool. Um, so what, what do you like about it? What are the things that you enjoy? People are utterly fascinating. Um, not so much in the role that I'm in now, um, but certainly in a lot of organizations that I've worked for, um, back in Leeds, um, the weird and wonderful things people will do to get out of doing the job they're being paid for is, uh, no end of fascination to me, Simon. Honestly, it's got to be a lot harder to not do your job and try and get away with it than just to come in and do your 37 hours. Mm. Um, so that, there's that, but joking aside, uh, and I appreciate that's quite a flippant response. <laughs> um, you know, HR isn't just about, you know, telling people off or, you know, you know, managing people out if they're sick. It's, it's not about that. It's about actually, okay, people are here for a massive proportion of their week. Mm. How are we going to give them the best experience possible? And how are we going to give them all the skills and knowledge they need to do a good job? Mm. but also to succeed and feel worthwhile. Mm. Um, no one wants to come in and do the same thing every single day. You know, how can we mix it up? How can we make a job, you know, inspiring and interesting and make people want to do their best? Um, I hope that doesn't sound like a cliche response. It's genuinely what I get out of it. And I think yeah. that side of HR is often very much missed yeah. because people just see the you see HR when things go wrong. Yeah, or, or when it's just the... Um you know the sort of rules and regulations side of like you know fill in this form and fill in this form and yeah make sure this form goes over there yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) right then so uh i i would guess there's a level of progression here you know because you've been in the role for sort of seven years so i guess you you kind of worked up to being a business partner so how did you what was your sort of entry level into hr did you sort of just join a team and then kind of become team manager and work your way up or? So I was really lucky that I came in at a HR advisory level. So who's generally dealing with the, you know, sickness cases and disciplinary and that kind of thing. I was working in a small team, um, at British Gas actually. Um, so there was me and a HR manager and a HR business partner there. Um, I progressed then to being a, a HR manager there, which was, um, which was great. Um, and then um, they made lots of people redundant at British Gas and moved to a different model. So I then within various different HR advisor roles in different organisations. Um, so I worked for Step Change, the debt charity, who were fantastic to work for. Worked for Leeds City College as well. Um, and then while I was at Leeds City College, um, progressed into a business partner role. And now I'm over here in Malta. Mm-hmm. So um, I find in the HR profession, from organisation to organisation, Different job titles mean different things. Yeah. So in one organization, a HR advisor 
does something completely different to another one. So the titles are um, much of a muchness, um, I would say, for um, HR business partner, HR manager, and more senior than HR advisor. Yeah. And then you've generally got a HR, a head of HR or a HR director above that. Yeah. I know all of that will depend on the size of the organization as well, because, you yeah. know, the more people you have, the more people you need to support the people. So Exactly. Yeah. Um, Okie dokie then. So um, let's go through COVID to begin with then. So if you can remember back, so I guess you were working in Leeds at the time, uh, working for another place in your HR role. Um, just take us through sort of going into lockdown and, you know, whether you were furloughed or you were working from home or like, how, how was that for you? Yeah. So, um, I think like lots of other people, we thought it's not really a thing like this is all going to go away. You know, we'll, we'll all be home for, you know, we'll all be back in the office for Easter. Mm-hmm. What what nonsense is that? You know, we'd sent um, a few of our really vulnerable staff home to work from home. Um, where I was working at the time, um, there was, there wasn't a culture of working from home. It would be rare that you would work from home for any reason. Um, and to be honest, and it's going to be, um, quite selfish and I don't want to digress too much when it really hit hold to me was I was meant to get married um and they rang me and cancelled my wedding two days before we closed the office and it was at that point that I thought oh my uh actually there's something much bigger here it's not just uh yeah yeah it's not just something on the news (laughs) not just something on the news or not just something that actually is going to be resolved (laughs) in a couple of weeks so uh, we sent um oh I remember it closing down we all went and worked from home um and because we didn't have a culture of working from home um and still i think as a lot of organizations you know people can't do their jobs from home you know what people doing at home so there was no sort of real format no real structure our managers didn't really know how to to manage a team remotely and i think for the first sort of maybe month or so thought we're probably not going to have to because this is all going to go away soon um so yeah it was a very surreal time we didn't furlough we a very, very small proportion of our staff were furloughed. So, mm. for example, um, our canteen staff mm. um, and some of our cleaners were furloughed. But other than that, all of our other staff were working all the way through. Yeah. Um, we, um, so at the time I was working for the college, so I, I was supporting our management and our teachers to teach remotely, which they'd not yeah. done before um, as well. So it was supporting them with that all of our IT systems and things again with a really, really uh, unusual time. But yeah, words such as furlough, we've never come across before. We're like, oh my gosh, what is this? Um, <laughs> we, um, most of our staff worked from home. We did have a small proportion of staff who continued to, to go on site. So um, due to the nature of education, there were some vulnerable students where it was for safeguarding reasons better for them to still come into college. And yeah. um, so we also had the challenges of supporting those staff who were supporting those students as well and ensuring their health and safety. It w- was obviously a, a very difficult time. Yeah. So was it, was it kind of stumble out of bed, fall in front of the computer and do hours and hours and hours? Like, did you end up working more, working less, or did it really um, vary? vary? So, <laughs> who's to say that I've not got pajama pants on now <laughs> <laughs> as I'm working from home today um you know I think there was, there was a, a little bit of that but in terms of the hours worked I found in the main 
um, everybody works longer hours. Yeah. There seems to be this thing, um, I don't know if it's maybe copied some of your other conversations that, so we used um, Google Suite or Microsoft Teams to communicate. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you're away from your computer for a certain amount of time, it goes yellow, you know, like a little icon next to it. And people became obsessed with this. Like, they didn't want to go to the toilet. Like, constantly, well, people are going to think I'm, you know, off the want of a better phrase. If it's not, you know, saying that I'm, I'm constantly available, if I'm not available for everyone mm. at all. And this sort of, I don't know where it came from because nobody was saying that to anybody. Yeah. People seemed obsessed that they had to be at the laptop for every second. Whereas if you were in the office, you'd, wander off for a coffee or, you know, whatever it might be that you were doing, or you, you know, your phone rings, you answer it, you might not. Mm. I always answer the phone, I promise. Um, but yeah, um, there just became this culture that everyone felt they had to work solidly all the time. And I, I don't think it's not just where I was working. I think when I speak to all of my HR friends or just anybody who was working in a sort of office led environment, but from home during the pandemic, um, you know, conversations that you would have had organically. You know, you've overheard someone talking about, you know, whatever they watched on Netflix last night. Well, people weren't ringing each other to have those kind of chats. You rang someone on Teams with a purpose. Yeah. And so all of that was lost, um, which was a bit of a shame. But yeah, people were working. I found I worked more, um, particularly once we realised that actually we were going to have to make the way we were working the new normal. Yeah. Um, okay. And then... Go on. <laughs> um, in the middle of all of this, and I can tell you this because it was in the papers, um, the, there was a massive cyber attack. So we also had no systems, no email, um, no anything. Right, whilst working from home with all of our staff. So yeah, so that added a little bit more chaos to the mix. That's going to be total chaos because it's like getting hold of people. To tell people what's going on, you know, they're trying to log in and they can't log yeah. in to work and then they can't ring anyone. Yeah, but, or, or they all ring you, or they all. Yeah, and it was going on. for the best part of a month. Mm. Um, and the only way we could communicate was through Google Suite. So yes, that were, uh, added some more well, fun to the middle of the uh, the COVID times. Um, so yeah, very interesting indeed. Um, in terms of coming out of the other side of COVID mm. um, and that kind of thing. Um, I understand for lots of different reasons that people, a lot of people are reluctant to go back to the office and, you know, why on earth would someone want to travel in their own time at their own expense? Mm. Um, and that's their working day, work-life balance and things. And certainly um, in the UK, um, across all sectors, I think there's certainly, as is, is well documented, a certain drive for there to be remote working, to have a hybrid working model, to not go back to what we had before. Mm. Um, so yeah, certainly a lot of the conversations I was having before I, um, moved out here were very much around, you know, trying to convince people that a little bit of face-to-face -face collaboration might be a good thing now and again, rather yeah. than just, uh, just on teams. So, yeah. um, it'll be interesting to see how things pan out certainly, you know, over the next six or 12 months in that respect. How did, how did you find it then? So how did you find the, you know, moving to remote work? Did you? prefer it did it give you more flexibility or were you chomping at the bit to get back into an office or I mean obviously not because you're working remotely today so <laughs> you obviously can stand working remotely yeah you know I I really I really like remote work and there are lots of things that you can do and mm. um, working remotely there were however some very awful conversations that I had to have by awful I mean difficult 
mm. um, challenging conversations that I had to have with individuals. And you just think, gosh, I want to be able to give this person, you know, a tissue or at least a comforting glance that isn't through a screen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it, some things I, do, I just think you need to be face to face for. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I think in any role, you, you overhear things and you have these organic conversations just on sitting and chatting or bumping into someone in a corridor. Mm. Um, lots of that knowledge that you glean without even realising it. Mm. Um, that that gets lost when everybody's working remotely all of the time. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I do think there are, there are lots of benefits. I've, I've been invited to less meetings for meetings' sake. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've all been known to sit in one of those, and, and at least if we had, I we could perhaps look at another screen and do something else. Yeah. Uh, not that we'd ever admit to that. Um, <laughs> I'm a, a fan of a, a hybrid working model. Um, mm-hmm. I like people. Um, which is a good job for the sector and the, the industry that I work in. <laughs> so I quite like uh, being in a room with people and, and, and talking things out. Mm. Um, but I think I think for most roles, you can, you can balance both of it. I don't think, personally, there's any need for everybody to be in all of the time anymore. Yeah, no, I would agree. And But I think there is a need to go in and to meet colleagues and to, you know, at least start building some of those bonds with people. I think so. Um, in terms of that culture and particularly but you know within HR it's really important that an organization has a culture has a feel you know that everybody's on that same journey and has that same purpose and you're only going to get that from building um, relationships whether it's just a good working relationship whether actually that turns into friendships or, or or whatever else and I think that gets lost a lot in remote working you know kudos to anybody who moved roles in the middle of the pandemic and was onboarded just completely remotely you know yeah. And 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 have managed to successfully integrate themselves in teams, you know, because it's it's a two-way thing, both from the employer and from the employee. So, yeah, and that's the new normal now. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, this this is the thing. When I started this, I started actually doing the first recordings in 2019, and I knew this was going to be a crazy decade. And I was like, yeah, this is this is going to be a crazy decade. And I start doing this and we're three months in and the world closes down. I'm like, well, I didn't expect it to be that crazy that quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so you didn't, you didn't change. We were out of COVID when you moved into this position then. So, but I guess you still had to interview remotely because you're working abroad. So how, how was that? How was your onboarding into this new role? And especially kind of coming out of COVID, did you kind of, did you knew you want to move after COVID? Was that kind of the feeling you needed to change or like, how did the new role come about? So I had um, come out of uh, a very serious relationship, the one where the marriage was related. Um, so just come out of that and had moved into a lovely apartment in the middle of Leeds. Um, yeah, and it was just, uh, you know, I didn't mind the job that was in. Lots of wonderful things there. And it, it, was, it was just... Like I said, by chance, I saw that job on LinkedIn. 300 days essentially. Or a job abroad. I wasn't even looking for anything outside of Leeds. I've been very much a, I want to live in Leeds and I want to be able to walk to work. That's my two caveats. Mm. Um, so it never even crossed the line and it was just, um, yeah, a fluke. In total, I had, I want to say seven or eight interviews, which is a lot. Mm. Um, now, the organization I work for have a very sort of, not informal interview process, but it's not a, you know, all those competency-based questions that we all yeah 
Um, they do it, you know, in a much more, you know, you have conversations with different people, you know, someone who might be a key stakeholder, someone who might be a manager, someone who might be a peer to get a bit of a more rounded feel. Um, so I did uh, quite a few of those all on, all on Zoom mm. on Teams and that kind of thing. And then they flew me out and it was really interesting. So you start having these conversations about jobs and stuff and then, and then halfway through someone will go, oh, you had a double job, don't you? Mm. Because obviously all of the restrictions, you know, if you yeah, had yeah. double jobs, you couldn't fly for work. Uh, and so all these other things then become part of, you know, the conversation that like you don't even think are going to be relevant in any way. Yeah. They sort of flew me out and I, you know, met some people out here. That was back in October. Um, and the only reason I delayed coming out till February 1, um, well, it's Christmas, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and, and my father would have an absolute meltdown if he didn't get to spend um, Christmas Day with his little girl. Um, so I couldn't move in December. And then it's her birthday at the beginning of January. And nobody wants to, yeah. So, yeah, you don't want to spend it on your own in a foreign country that you've only just exactly. moved to. <laughs> and packing boxes over Christmas and stuff. Yeah. But the purely selfish reasons, if I'm honest, but they did understand. So then I moved out here at the beginning of February. And um, when I moved out, they, um, so obviously these are part of that, that experience that, you know, we don't have in the UK. So when I came out here, they put me in an apartment for, for mm. four weeks to give me time to look for somewhere. Um, you know, and try and put you with people, you know, that you're going to get along with. Um, so yes, I came out here and started the job pretty much straight away. Although the induction uh, was remote while I was here. Mm. So, um, because they have people from all over the world, cause they've got offices yet yeah, globally. So they put you all in like a, a three day induction together, mm-hmm. all remote and online. And then I went into the office after that. So over here at the moment, um, we still wear face masks. All right. Um, so we're not it, quite in the office as well. Yeah. In the office as well. And um, there's, so you've got to sit two meters apart, you know, but between every desk, there is a, a space. You can only have so, so many people, um, in a room of a certain size. Um, yeah. So they got, have they got quite a, have they got a low vaccine take up or have they got low amounts of vaccines or it's just the, the they're playing it safe. Just playing it safe. I think, yeah. um, the, um, infection numbers have just like in the UK, risen of late. Um, but in terms of just generally speaking, they've always been fairly low here. Mm. Um, but the, we're really strict on it at one point. I would say it certainly feels more relaxed here than it did at the height of the UK during COVID though. Yeah, yeah. In terms of, you know, when people were being really, really ill. It feels very relaxed. It's just that happens that everybody's wearing face masks. Yeah. Uh, but I'm hoping, you know, over the coming few weeks that, yeah. Yeah, as it gets warmer and, yeah, and people... <laughs> get more irritated yeah, by their masks on their faces in the heat. I was going to say, you know, if we think we think to the, you know, the peak of last year on on the what the hottest day in the UK, which might have been a you know a balmy twenty six, and we're all there like I can't wear face masks. It's far too hot. We're going to be sweating, <laughs> and out here it'll get into thirty five and forty. Mm. Um, so yeah, so they need to get rid of it before <laughs> that happens. <laughs> My Yorkshire base can't cope with that. <laughs> So, um, when you've been into the offices, are they quite, are they quite big offices or are they taking advantage of the fact that people have to work remotely and they've kind of <laughs> downsized their space or? No, they haven't downsized here. So we've got two, we've got two offices here and there's, and there's plenty of space. Mm. Um, although, you know, um, staff are working a hybrid model at the moment. Um, so they come in two days yeah. work from home to three. Um, and then we have some staff who works nights and things. And if obviously if you run a later shift we'll be working from home. Um, but certainly when I speak to my counterparts in HR in the UK, 
and mm. um, some of them have absolutely downsized. So, um, yeah, one of my previous employers had a huge office um, above the Merion Centre and three right next to it. Mm. And I've now got one very, very small, lovely little shiny office <laughs> where people go in for, for meetings and to collaborate or once a week or whatever. So yeah. significantly downsized and really made the most of it. And to be honest, I say good on them. Yeah. The point of having all of that empty space is no one's going to be utilising it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And But you say, you, you know, I, I see a lot of that in offices anyway, you know, because like various staff turnovers or turnovers or whatever and like there's quite often a lot of rationalization going on around estates of like well we've got this floor and we've had half of it empty for however can we move this team in here and then get rid of paying for that floor and and so yeah. on and yeah and you know sort of lots of organizations were trying to sort of move to more you know we'll hot desk and we'll do all of that mm. kind of thing well covid absolutely ruined that mm. um because obviously we're you know disinfecting offices and things um, but you're right, you know, and people are quite precious about having their own desk in the office. Mm. And I totally get that if, you know, you're there for 40 hours or, you know, 37, 40 hours, 35 hours. That's not a lot of time. Mm. Um, and, you know, and people are, you know, want to have the, the personal effects and things around and don't want to be just sat at some random desk. And I totally get that too. Um, mm. particularly if, you know, maybe you're not feeling your best that day, maybe mm. you're hungover, maybe what. Being right, I'm about to go into work today. Not that I'm ever hungover or all that any stuff I ever look after are, of course. But you know, all of these things, you think, well, I'm going to get there and I'm already not feeling my best. Mm. And then I've got to try and find a desk and, you know, yeah. rather than actually thinking, well, actually, I've got my own personal space and all my things are there, my nice cups there yeah. and, you know, my whatever tea bags. Mm. So, yeah. Or like when you have a hot desk, but it's one of those offices where you know, you can generally get the same desk all the time. So you think of it as yours and then you come in one day and someone's got in earlier and they've taken your desk and you're like, ah, that's my desk. It's like the absolute Brit's world's nightmare, isn't it? Like someone would have said, I'm on a visual desk. <laughs> go lie down over things like that. Um, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a new interesting way to work, but I think, yeah, lots of organisations, I think, will be keeping this, uh, they're keeping the hybrid model. And I think if they don't, without wanting to go, um, bore you too much about, uh, you know, being an employer of choice, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I think if organisations don't embrace that remote, remote and hybrid model, they won't be able to attract the best talent. People mm. want to work remotely. Mm. Yeah. And so you either need to embrace it and get the good talent, otherwise people will go work elsewhere. Yeah. Um, when I have conversations with um, my HR colleagues, and I promise that outside of work, we are a bit more interesting. We don't just go and talk about HR facts and figures and people <laughs> trends. Um, but they say, you know, but particularly ones um, in the UK where they've asked the staff to come back in four or five days a week, they said people are leaving. Yeah. People are absolutely leaving. Why, why should they travel in their own time at yeah. their own expense to come and sit in an office and do the same job that we do perfectly well at home? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And 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 now they've had two years of well, you know, pretty much two years of a new routine. Yeah. So it's kind of like, well, my life's changed now, and I'm I'm kind of settled doing this. So, you know, you're the easiest thing to change because you're becoming the you know the the role is the easiest thing to change at that point if you've got the you know the um the skill set and the previous work experience to be able to do that and just go well, I can just go somewhere else and that I can keep yeah. my routine. And it baffles me that a lot of it comes down to trust as well. Um, so we'll get someone in a room and interview them for 45 minutes. So really we don't know anything about them. Mm. Um, 
love for him a job with a contract and lots of money, hopefully lots of money. But then we don't trust them to go do that job at home. But mm. we've trusted them to give him a contract and a check and, and whatever else or based on this 45 minute interaction. But then we're just not going to trust them. Mm. Well, what's the point then? Yeah. Surely we need to be having an interview process that makes so we do trust the people we're bringing in. And don't get me wrong, if someone's not performing or, you know, they're disappearing for hours and hours and hours at a time with no explanation, I'm getting up. I understand why someone might want to get them into the office. You know, give people a little bit of, a little bit of leeway. Trust them a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I assure you, people get up to just as much mischief and cause just as much mayhem, whether they're sat in the office or whether they're sat at home. Yeah. But that's it. I, I think it was interesting when you were saying about that I think there's, it's not all of us, but maybe all of us at certain points have been into places where you kind of, you feel, maybe you feel the need to be surveilled of like, or at least to have supervision, you know, uh, at the very least someone who can say you're doing that wrong or do this different or somebody that you can ask. But sometimes it's the kind of, well, it's, it's not a job if there's not someone watching over me, making sure that I don't break the rules. So, and then if I, if they're not there, then I have to break all the rules. You know, you, you have all these weird reactions to things. Of, of course you do. And you know, it's like with, um, so one of the employers I worked for previously, we, um, dismissed someone for fraud related activity. But when you look at it, this person didn't go straight in at a thousand pound a time. Yeah. They went in at a fibre and nobody noticed. So then you do a tenant and, and so forth. It's like, well, what I'll do is I'll just take an extra 10 minutes on my lunch. Mm. Oh, well, the next thing you know, you're not working all afternoon. Mm. You know, people don't go out of the way straight away. But like you say, when people aren't watching, some people do take liberties. Um, yeah, I think certainly when you're new to an organisation, though, I think there's a lot of benefit of being face to face. You know, it's much easier to turn around and go, Jim, what does that mean? Mm. Oh, Jim, can you come and help me with this? I'm thinking, right, well, I've got to, Message to one teams and maybe they'll be busy and maybe they'll feel awkward and, and, mm. and all of that. But uh but yeah, you're right. But you've you've um, got to know the organizational culture as well, haven't you? You've got to you have to be in the place to get a sense of like how everybody else is acting and the ways that they're working and the kind of things that are like that's okay to do here, that's not tolerated at all, this is okay to do. So yeah, you need you need to be in for that. You can't get that from a computer screen. Maybe from the tone of emails, but yeah. Um, Absolutely. The amount of time I have had employees in rooms crying because the manager sent them an email and it's come across as really short and direct. And actually they could have fluffed it up and put, I hope you had a nice weekend. But because they're styled, because they don't know their manager or they don't have that working relationship, it has just come across as rude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually when they, you know, they, they, you know, they talk to manager and you sit them down and whatever else and they work it out, a manager goes, yes, all right. I don't know you and I could have been a bit fluffier employees like, well, yes, I, I recognize you were just busy now, but yeah, the amount of ups that I've seen over emails, um, <laughs> yeah, is, uh, yeah, I can't, can't even begin to count. But it is terrible because there is so much nuance that's missed, you know, you yeah. tone of voice and so on and the turn of phrase. And if you're being really direct into the point, which, you know, is a, as a manager is someone who's like, you know, in theory and hopefully in practice is someone that's like their time is at a premium of you know we've got to maximize the time use and so <laughs> they want to keep it short and to the point you know like when you do stuff for managers it's like well don't write me you know 30 pages to read give me the bullet points and then i can investigate 
things further if I need to. Yeah. What I've certainly learned in this role is not to take things on face value. Like even now, so where I'm working, I see lots of correspondence from lots of different people with me about um, all kinds of different things. And for lots of them, English isn't their first language. Mm. And so whilst their English is much better than any of the languages that there will be their first language, don't get me wrong. Sometimes I'll get an email like, oh, that's very uh, whatever. And actually, you know, if, before you even start, actually, you know, you've got to take that into consideration. Um, so, yeah, I never take anything on face value. It's <laughs> um, very wise. Yeah. So you're in the role. We know why you're doing it and how you got into it. So if you could change any three things about the role, uh, what would you change? So you don't have to use all three and it can be anything. So it can be silly if you want, or you can say everything's perfect. <laughs> we can wish. And um, I think, um, and as I've touched on already, um, you know, HR is very much seen as, even in organizations today, um, as the Grim Reaper. And we only ever hear people often, shall I say, contact us because something has gone wrong. People are not ringing me to go, oh, you know, Jim's come in today and he looks really nice and he's performing really well. And I really like him. It's, you know, Jim's not rocked up. Jim's drunk. You know, Jim's punched someone. So people are never contacting us with good news in HR. And so sometimes that can be really draining. Mm. You are dealing with employee issues a significant amount of the time. Mm. Um, and so it can be some very, very, you know, really complex stuff. So it can be quite draining um, sometimes. So whilst I suppose there's nothing I can change about that, because ultimately there are always going to be people issued and that is the nature of the role. And, you know, everybody at some point in their life is going to have some kind of crisis or something they need support with. Um, it can sometimes be a lot. Um, so um, I've often found like, you know, when you work in a team, at least you can sound bored to somebody else. But, you know, I've seen some, yeah, some really awful stuff over the years, both for personally for them or for, you know, for the organisation, what someone's done. So, yeah, that can be quite something. But yeah, in terms of the sort of Grim Reaper thing, I would like it if people could see more of the positive things we do in HR. And maybe it's just that as HR professionals, we don't sing about it enough. You know, people aren't going to know the lovely things we've done in the background unless we tell everyone, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I know it's not very, it's not um, in our British nature to, you know, go around singing about all the wonderful things that we do. But yeah, it'd be nice <laughs> if uh, people saw HR had a bit more of a positive life. We're not all there just to hit you over the head with a rule book. Uh, we do genuinely want you to have a nice time at work. I could go as far as full, uh, but a nice time. Um, so, yeah, so that would be lovely. Um, and I suppose the only other thing is, and it, and it, it really changes from organisation to organisation. It can often be the, you know, bureaucracy and the hierarchy. So in one of the organisations I've worked with in Leeds, and I won't say which, it took forever to do absolutely anything, uh, you know, months and months and months because it would have to go through every level of the organisation all yeah. the way up to the top. And you're just thinking, does the CEO really need to be involved in this? Yeah. And it's great, obviously, that, but it, it was just so bureaucratic, um, but a lot of, for a number of different reasons. And mm. the reason that frustrates me is that if we identify something is wrong and something is hindering that employee experience, and actually there's a really quick fix we could put in place to make things better, to make people happier at work, yeah. to make people enjoy being here. But you couldn't because it took so long to do it. Yeah. And actually you think, well, I can't enact change and make things better to people because it takes too long. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that can be quite frustrating. So, you know, I understand that there has to be a framework and that certain people have to be involved in certain decisions fully understand that and all the rationale for it 
Yeah. But it's when it takes too long. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was going to say from as you've been talking, I'm thinking like, and thinking of I've I've been in HR teams, um, like done HR advisor roles, and um, it is very because it's very process driven and it's very kind of reactive. Like, how much do you get sort of autonomy in the role or get to be proactive? Like, where do you find? Because I mean that must be really frustrating. Because obviously, like the 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 employment policies had sort of come down from on high, and you know, kind of decided at board level, and and kind of, and and then your your departments there to kind of enact them. So where where are the areas where you can kind of drive things, drive innovations for yourself, like uh, create new things for yourselves? Yeah. So in the role I'm in now, there is absolute um, capacity to do that. Yeah. Um, which I'm really lucky. So some of the things I'm going to be working on is doing some um, career mapping stuff and some things around, um, you know, bringing departments together and cross-skilling and, um, and mentoring schemes and things where I am now. But in the role, I've, you know, one of the roles I've just come from, um, because it was so reactive all of the time, there was just no capacity to do any of that, yeah. um, which is, you know, frustrating as HR professionals because obviously you had to see the reactive stuff all the time and if we yeah. could do some of the more proactive stuff it would reduce the reactive stuff yeah um so yeah it can be yeah I agree with you very frustrating in that respect um and you know the amount of people issues in some organizations is never going to change particularly in in mm -hmm. with certain demographics and certain industries it's probably just about how we manage them more efficiently I suppose yeah. but if we're so busy managing all the reactive stuff, we're never going to have time to look at that. Yeah. I mean, is it at the business partner level, are you kind of looking, do you want to, being in HR, do you want to kind of get away from the lower paid jobs, which I'm guessing have more, more issues and more things to process into the higher paid jobs, which hopefully should have less issues and more <laughs> things to process or different issues. But, uh, you know, I would imagine the turnover is higher at the the lower levels of the hierarchy than it is at the higher levels yeah absolutely um, it's a bit like so like i said before um i worked in hr i worked in a contact center so people come in as customer service agents and they're like yeah i'm all about people i'm all about the customer really what they want is to be a team leader so they get off the phone yeah that's the aim isn't it yeah. and when you're a team leader obviously you, you know, you get some escalations and things. But when you're a team leader, you then want to become an ops manager. So you don't have to deal with people and you don't have to deal with customers. Fantastic. You don't have to deal with your team, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to deal with any of that either. <laughs> so I suppose you could argue the same in HR. You know, you come in as a HR admin person, you're like, yeah, I want to be, um, you know, I want to manage casework. I want to be all about, you know, sorting people issues. And you get that and you're like, actually what I want is to be far away from people <laughs> so i can see what you're saying and um, certainly in the role that i'm in now um is less um employee relations focused yeah. um, and absolutely gives me time to look at those you know strategic objectives and look at the agenda and how we're going to translate that whether it's over the next year two years five years mm. absolutely um but it's still you know there'll always be a place in my heart for uh, uh some misconduct and a disciplinary <laughs> things will be enough don't get me wrong um <laughs> So yeah, so there's all of that. Yeah, there, you know, there are some things um, with HR that are always going to be a challenge. Um, it does vary enormously from organisation to organisation though. Um, but yeah, but the number one thing is how HR is perceived in lots of organisations. Yeah, I can mm -hmm. change that. But it's, it's kind of, 
um, it's sort of a bit big, big, big brotherish, isn't it? Because you know, a lot of talking. Oh, you know, I'll go straight to HR, or they'll go to HR, or if HR finds out about this, <laughs> exactly. Um, and you know, sometimes it's of our. I don't want to say our own doing, but HRs and managers doing. So you know, if someone's off sick, someone's got cancer. Mm. You know, HR are deemed as lovely. You know, really supportive. Everyone's having these lovely phone calls and you know, sending flowers and whatever else. But then. If someone's been, if someone's going through an investigation for some misconduct, they've been accused of something, mm. um, it could, that, that sort of, well, actually, this person's probably having a really awful time because they've been accused of something and they're really worried they're going to lose their job. And we don't actually know if we've done anything yet. Mm. All of that, all those nice conversations and how are you and what can we do to support you this time seem to go out of the window mm. or it's perceived they go out of the window and then therefore people are like, well, HR are horrible. All managers are horrible. So yeah, I can, you know, it's both sides of things. I'll go with the UBI question first, because I get the impression that you're someone that's enjoying their job and that you're enjoying your new job and the new job's giving you new opportunities and that's exciting. Yeah. Um, if you had a universal basic income, um, so you were getting sort of enough money to live each month. Yeah. Would you still do this job? Would you be looking at a different role? Would you do things differently? How do you think it would affect things? You know, every job has got aspects of it that people like more and like less. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we're all butterflies at heart, aren't we? And we all want the shiny fun things. Yeah. Um, you we know, certainly. everything all the time. Yeah, all, all the little <laughs> things all the time. Yeah. And there are certain, you know, some of the, the, the HR project management stuff is what really... Um, flicks my switch for want of a better phrase you know I like taking things from the beginning where we're thinking okay how can we make a difference where do we want to be and and going all the way through that journey mm-hmm. so that that element of it I would want to keep the most I think um some of the day-to-day stuff perhaps not so much I think yeah. we'll answer that um, I suppose it depends on how much like universal basic income is because I think we could have a whole conversation about uh what uh <laughs> what the government thinks that should be and what you and I think that should be but uh yeah a lot not go down that political pathway with you. <laughs> I mean, would you would would you uh, work less, perhaps, or I mean, would that be a consideration? Or are you happy doing sort of thirty five hours? So I'm quite happy with that. That said, I'm a big believer in, and I fully understand and recognise that you can't do this for every role. Mm. That you know, I come in and I do my hours. Some weeks I will work more. Some weeks yeah. I will work less, and it's very much a give and take. And anybody I've ever managed. I've always had that same with them, you know, mm. if you want to leave early because you've got a Zumba class or you want to take a two hour lunch or you want, you crack on and do that as long as your work is getting done. Yeah. I'm very happy for people to be flexible, whether that means, you know, going up and down as you please with that. I do understand, however, you know, if you've got a contact centre to run and our customers need everybody there at five o'clock, therefore we need our agents there at five o'clock. Yeah. And so I'm lucky that I have that flexibility. Um, am I an advocate of the four day working week? Yes, I think that would be fantastic. Yes, please sign me up for that. Um, <laughs> uh, certainly. Um, I think ev- everyone would like to work less. And I think, you know, you know, in the UK and certainly here in Malta, they work some of the longest hours in Europe. Mm. Um, I think we could be working less. And I think there's a lot of studies that show we could only be engaged mm. and genuinely work meaningfully for a finite amount of time. No, that's it. The extra hours end up reducing productivity. Yeah. So, yeah. you know. If it's just mm-hmm. actually I've got X amount of tasks, you know, and I need to get them done and you, and you do them in, in, in whatever amount of time it takes you to do them, then so be it. Um, but I appreciate we're a long way uh, 
from that. You know, in most of our roles, it wasn't much of a work to 100 hours. There's still going to be something to do. We're not just going to get to the end of the book. Like, oh, I've got nothing left now. Well, uh, you know, <laughs> so it, it, it's managing that work. But yes, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd love to work less, wouldn't we all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes. But then equally, you know, there, there are people who during lockdown didn't have to do all the hours in the world, but ended up doing it because they they were like full of nothing else to do. You know, I'm using up my commute time on extra work. And some people do really throw themselves into working endlessly because oh, for whatever reason. They do. And don't get me wrong. It's, you know, I have friends who, you know, are self-confessed workaholics and, you know, um, you know, love what they do. You know, somebody, I'm just going to log on and do this. And I'll be like, well, why? Mm. Like, well, because I enjoy it. And actually I'm enjoying what I'm looking at. So, um, yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. But, you know, if I was to win the lottery tomorrow and I didn't have to work ever again, would I? Um, <laughs> obviously, I would do something. Um, but I don't know if it would quite be in the same format um, yeah. that I have now. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, so I've got a question on climate change. All right. Um, so, I, I mean, it's around, it, it's work-based. Um, so... In your role, um, can you do anything about climate change? Is this something that, you know, is this something that's affecting your work or something that your work can affect? I mean, in a positive way in terms of can you do anything to alleviate or arrest or adapt within your current role? Or is that something that's outside of the scope of what you're doing? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So... Not directly on my role, but in terms of every organisation I've worked for recently, be, mm. being green has been high on the agenda. Mm. Um, so, for example, at the college, they have a big, I'm in green, recycling's a big focus. They swapped out all of their vehicles for electric vehicles, mm. don't have face-to-face -face meetings unless it requires, because we look at, you know, offsetting any any carbon, et cetera, there. Mm. Um, you know, I think certainly in lots of organisations, do we really need to do all the trouble that we were doing before, mm. you know? Uh, for one of the organisations I used to work for, we used to, and I won't say which one, and I'm not saying it wasn't lovely, but, you know, we used to fly everywhere all the time. Mm. Um, so all of these things. So it's making different um, choices there. And um, certainly as part of any procurement process, we always ask about the green credentials of the organisation that we're going to be working with. That's high on the priority list. Mm. And when it comes to anyone we do any, any third party business with, and that's been the same for, again, most of the organisations I've worked with um, over the last few years. Um but yeah, it is a huge priority. I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you feel that it's, do you feel that you're doing what needs to be done? Do you feel that that's kind of driving the conversation or do you feel that it's kind of reacting? Like, do you, do you think it's at the right level or is it one of those, we're doing the best we can and we're always improving or what, what's your sense of that? Um, I think... I've been really lucky in the organisations that I've worked with recently. It doesn't feel tokenistic. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, climate or equality and diversity, you look at some of the things that some organisations do and it, and it feels very sort of box ticky, very much, uh, yeah. you know, a bit of an add-on. Um, it's like the know, main thing they did was produce an advert saying that they support it when they've done absolutely nothing yeah. in the business about it. Yeah, and they filled in the form and they paid the money and now they could put a logo on the website. Yeah. You know, all of that kind of thing. Um, you know, the college particularly felt really strongly about its green credentials in mm. terms of it was on the agenda for all of the students and all of the work that I did. Like it was a huge thing and they were doing everything they could and looking for ways yeah. to improve all of the time. 
Yeah. Um, so I've been really lucky to, to be exposed to that and, and be parts of organisations who felt really strongly that actually it's all of our responsibility to make a difference and it needs to be actively part of the conversation. Yeah. Just And again, you know, um, same with equality and diversity. It's yeah. not just something we bring up occasionally. It needs to be part of every conversation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. 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 Um, but then you have the thing at scale as well in that, you know, a large organization has the capacity to invest in that and invest in making it a part of every conversation. You know, if they're serious about it and they want to do it, they, they have the capacity to do that. Whereas at a smaller scale, you have more freedom to do that because you have less, you know, you have less of a big ship to steer around it, but you don't yeah. necessarily have the capacity and resources to to follow it. So yeah, I would agree. In how they both interact because they kind of drive each other. So, you know, small companies have that flexibility and big companies can go, oh, that was a really good idea. We'll nick that. Whereas um, they also have the money to invest in things and have teams of people to think up things that can be done with actual resources and apply the resources to them. Yeah, I agree. Anything that is good, I find, and not always, I it's appreciate it's a sweeping statement, generally costs money, yeah. whether it's money is time or physically money, yeah. you know you know, buying organic, doing whatever, things cost more. And you're absolutely right. Some smaller organizations would probably like to be doing more, but can't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, just on the sort of inclusion and access thing, since you brought it up, um, I mean, you're recruiting from all over the world. Yeah. So you've obviously got a very diverse workforce. Um, in terms of disabilities and so on, how, how good are they with that? I mean, obviously with a lot more remote working available, that's like... Do you, do you see more people who are, um, what's the, I'm trying to think, able. I'm trying, yeah, trying to think of the, the, the term that they'd use on whatever, but yeah, do you find more disabled people kind of apply to these roles or declare their disabilities and so on? Um, have you noticed any? That's a really good question. So I suppose here, I've not seen some, so much as of yet, mm-hmm. um, cause I've not been here particularly long and I suppose, um. Yeah, but in terms of if you think of back in the UK mm. and COVID and remote working, I think that um, certainly increased applications. I think there's a lot, um, huge section of society that for for all the wrong reasons were, you know, overlooked. And actually it's shown that working in these ways can make work much more accessible to everyone. Mm. I've been really lucky that I've been part of organisations where I've had lots of, been able to support lots of differently abled people. Uh, both with the resources and software and things that we've had internally or working with the government scheme access to work who are good at um, coming in and making recommendations and can often give funding particularly to smaller organisations who might not be able to afford you know certain kinds of ergonomic chairs and rising desks and all that kind of thing Mm. Um, but in my um, experiences over the years we have had um, people come in with guide dogs um, into work which was amazing lovely Gus um you know we've had different size monitors we've had all kinds of different um software for people who are dyslexic or people um you know have got problems with it in those kind of ways yeah we've been able to do a lot over the years mm. um but i've been again very lucky that i've worked with sizable organizations where we've had whole teams who've been able to have that as their focus yeah i mean is it obviously you're not always involved in the onboarding with those but it's it, like you will be aware of the process because I'm imagining, you know, the onboarding team, the recruitment team, we're kind of getting them on board and they're passing you details as they've processed their parts of the paperwork. So you're 
you're hearing how how things are going. Um, yeah, absolutely. Now, um, not everybody declares their disability mm-hmm. and people don't have to. But obviously, the more information we have, the more able we are to put things in place to support those people, mm-hmm. even if it's just that actually, you know, you know, someone's got ADHD or might need additional breaks or, or whatever that might be. The more we know, the more we can help. Yeah. There is still certainly a stigma, um, a perceived stigma around disabilities, particularly mental health related disabilities. And um, lots of people are still reluctant um, to disclose those when asked about it. Um, and while I think the conversations are much better than they were three years ago, five years ago, mm-hmm. we've still got a long way to go in that arena, I would say, to make people um, feel comfortable being their authentic self when it comes to their mental health in the workplace. Mm. What's your working interaction with social media? Do you have to do any of it? Is it taking up more of your time? Um, yeah, what are, you, what are your thoughts and experiences around that in, in your role? Yeah, so social media is a really good way, I think, certainly from a recruitment perspective, mm-hmm. to engage. So I suppose that would be my interactions at the moment. I don't post a lot of it myself because we have a recruitment team. But in terms of trying to engage with, you know, your Gen Z, millennials all over the world, Social media is absolutely the way to do it. And in all kinds of ways. And, you know, I'm only 34, but I'm showing my age here that doing stuff on TikTok and on Reddit and all of these other places that I'm like, post all, you know, post on Facebook. Uh, so I'm a bit old cat. But, you know, in terms of social media, that is a, that is a way to, to engage with our audience. Um, LinkedIn, I do use a bit, generally sort of reposting articles and things, but it's not an expectation of my role. Um, but, you know, LinkedIn's a fantastic tool from that employer branding experience, you mm. know, in terms of of that. Um, but, yeah, there is more and more, like, you know, do these big organisations need a TikTok? I'm not on TikTok. I don't really know how it all works. But, yeah, so, um, but certainly there's whole teams in um, some of the organisations I've worked for who just do social media content, mm. who just do content writing, copywriting for social media for their organisation. Mm. I, I think in terms of cost benefit, you, you know, and then this is purely opinion. So it's just based yeah. on feeling and so on. But um, there's a lot of it that is very, very beneficial, you know, of micro targeting stuff. But so much of it is, you know, it's the noise and signal thing. It's like you have to produce a lot of rubbish. You have to produce quantity to get the quality in a way because yeah. you have to kind of figure out what you're doing and what your identity is then keep doing that identity and then innovate with the identity and <laughs> bring more people in um and like you were saying there's more and more platforms if you feel the need you, you've got to be on more and more platforms um i just wonder at what point like you know businesses are sort of rationalizing like is that really bringing back the return that we want even though we can't really quantify or measure the long tail of it you know it's a really it, it's sort of this is really good it's really hyper targeted and also we don't know anything about it either yeah do you know what i mean it's kind of like both sides of that yeah absolutely um and we're all a fan of you know a lot, lots of organizations are fan of just, we'll throw some money at it and hopefully mm-hmm. something will come back like a boomerang mm-hmm. um yeah no it's an interesting piece it also forces isn't the right word but as everybody's got a social media presence now, you know, whatever company, it makes companies um, comment or have to have an opinion on things they wouldn't have done before. Mm. Or they may well have had an opinion, but, you know, we didn't have to broadcast it out there, whereas now... Yeah. They have to make a statement on every piece of news. Yeah. This is our official position on this 
piece of gossip. You know, yeah, exactly. So people feel to come in and, they, and don't get me wrong, you know, I want to know that an organisation, you know, is behind Black Lives Matter. I want to know that obviously they're, you know, fully supportive of, you know, LGBT issues, whatever that may be. Uh, but, you know, some stuff, not so much, but, that, you know, that's my own, uh, own opinion there. But no, um, you know, I remember getting my first jobs uh, at 16 and 17 and whatever and looking in the Yorkshire Evening poster on the Telegraph and Argos, you know, in the newspaper for a little thing and you would ring the number or you would email. And as now it's all there. And, you know, I can't go on Facebook without being offered a job. Yeah. I've been told, you know, it's, everything is everywhere. So there are lots of good things. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to make a firm, like, quality judgment on that, isn't it? Because it's just like, oh, but there's lots of good things. Yeah, but there's also lots of awful things with it. So I don't and, know <laughs> on balance. And then particularly with my line of work, when it comes to social media, there's a conversation of, well, what can I post on my own social media? Mm. And what am I allowed to have an opinion on? Because what if my employer sees it? Mm. Um, and as you'll probably expect over the years, I've had all kinds of weird and wonderful conversations with people about things they've posted on their own social media. Mm. Uh, yeah. Did you really think it was appropriate to post this nude photo of you on a work night out? Yeah. Um, whether that or um, people making, you know, very, very strong political statements, but in a way that would be inappropriate or mm. racist comments, um, sexist comments, or my favourite, I'm off work sick with a bad back. And this is a picture of you on a roller coaster at Towers. Can you talk me through this? <laughs> Can you help me understand what's happening in this photo, please? Well, my physio said I needed to have my back thrown around and I couldn't yeah. afford a chiropractor, so I got on a roller coaster. Uh, yeah. You see, you've a trampoline in this photo. Can you help me understand? Um, <laughs> so sometimes it shoots people in the foot um, a little bit there. But yeah, some things, there's an argument of, you know, well, actually, how much is my social media as an employee of X company? Yeah. And what I post on that, an extension of the reputation of the place I'm working for. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like, well, you know I work here, but who else knows I work here? Like, yeah. My followers on whatever don't know I work here. I haven't told them. So how yeah, does that so affect anything? Some organisations and their policies seem to have, if, you know, basically don't put where you work on your profile and, you know, you can crack mm. on. Um, some take it further and say, no, well, your friends know you work for us. Mm. So, no. <laughs> so, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, my advice to anybody, uh, put all your social medias on private. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Best of And just try, you know, not to be racist if you can. Um, <laughs> With Brexit happening, it has happened. Um, have you noticed any change? And especially within, I mean, you would have been, you would have been still working over here when it did actually happen. So, yeah. uh, you know, and you're in the place, I would guess, to actually spot those changes in terms of who's coming in and the kind of issues that employees are dealing with and so on. Um, has it affected anything that you've seen, um, either good or bad? Um, so over here, um, it's changed, um, things a bit in terms of, of work permits and those kind of things. Um, so yeah, there's an impact there in terms of back in the UK, a lot of the things that, you know, I noticed. We're not work related, yeah. you know, all, all of the things that we, I think we're all experiencing sort of, you know, socially and the cost of living, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, over here, the, the, the only thing I've noticed so far says it has been visa related yeah. um, and just a, a general sense of bafflement. And so I, I, the amount of people who ask me, what was it like being in the UK when Brexit happened? 
Wow. <laughs> Not an experience I'd want to repeat. Not an experience I want to repeat. They've all been baffling. Um, but, um, so, yeah, so lots of the things that I've really seen um, are being sort of, yeah, very much those social environmental factors in that respect rather than actually in the workplace. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. If anything, um, particularly with, um, and we won't we'll go back to it because we covered it, if anything more in the workplace, there was certainly more of a noticeable impact with, with COVID. So when I was at the college, we used to have a lot of international students and obviously yeah. those kind of things stopped. Uh, but yeah, Brexit was more environmentally day-to-day outside of work. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I don't think, like, I think people will get to the point of feeling it in work. I mean, obviously there's, you know, it's not like I've, I've, I haven't talked to any truck drivers yet. Um, but, you know, there's certain industries or certain places where they're like, yeah, yeah, we've noticed Brexit. Um, but I haven't, you know, obviously I've not talked to anyone in that position yet. And I think for most of us, it's, it's you know, it'll be a while before we actually notice any kind of real impact from it. Yeah, there's going to be a certain, I think certainly there'll be skills gap shortages in certain industries for sure mm. um, as things progress. Mm. So um, before I move on to kind of random areas, um, I want to do a little bit, and because you mentioned skills, I want to do a bit around skills. So I used to work, I don't know if you've ever come across Union Learn, um, which is part of the TUC. So I used to work there. Um, So I did a lot of stuff around lifelong learning. I did my degree as a mature student um, and, you know, CIPD stuff. And as a HR professional yourself, um, that's an area that I would imagine looms quite large in your sort of professional working environment. Um, So, yeah. So can you just sort of talk around lifelong learning, CIPD, like what you know of it, what you're involved in, what you're not involved in? And yeah. Yeah. So. I'm really passionate about lifelong learning. I didn't do any A-levels. I didn't do a degree. I didn't go to university. I didn't do any of that. Um, and I've been really fortunate in the um, professional opportunities that have been afforded and made available to men. Um, makes me cringe um, on job adverts, um, unless it's absolutely necessary. And people go, I want people qualified to a, you know, a bachelor's or I want this or I want that. When it's absolutely not necessary, mm. um, knowledge, skills and experience that you learn from actually doing a role are going to, um, put you in much better stead. That said, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing those qualifications because you want to learn and grow. Mm. It's when we're saying people can't do it because they haven't had those opportunities. Mm. Um, there are some roles you need to be qualified for. Please, all the doctors and things out there, please don't think I'm not yeah, saying so, that you yeah. need to go <laughs> do that. Um, but really passionate in terms of learning because you want to grow your knowledge I'm doing it for you rather than it just being a, a prerequisite tick box. So I think is my thing when it comes to lifelong learning. Um, so I've done a CIPD. Um, I did that when I was 24, something like that, 24, 25. Um, and then I've also done um, a, a CMI leadership and management training, which mm. for anybody out there would was fantastic. Highly recommend that. Mm. Uh, they, um, I'm again... And I appreciate I speak from a place of um, luxury that because I've worked for big organisations, there's always been a big learning and development budget. We've always said, actually, if someone wants to do a course and it's relevant to the role or it's relevant to their development and broadly linked to something within the organisation, i.e. you don't want to go study to be a vet when you're working for a debt company, that we've always been able to support and develop people with that and always built 
development and courses and people's careers into, um, you know, appraisal conversations or, you know, talent succession conversations. And I appreciate not all organisations can afford to do that. Mm. It's something we're passionate about. I think that it keeps your mind active. And I think, you know, we can always learn more. We can always do better. There is no, no such thing as too much best practice. There is always a different, you know, mode of thought or a different model or a different way of thinking about things. Mm. Um, I think it would be blindsided for us to think, well, I've learned everything I need to know about this. There isn't possibly anything else I could ever need or any other thought process. Uh, so, yeah, it's something I'm really passionate about. Um, you talked about trade unions earlier. Um, I've been really lucky that some of the trade unions I've worked with have also very much been in that school of thought and offered their members courses as well. So it's yeah. not just been about, you know, others' HR. It's mm-hmm. also been um, from them too. And obviously, I'm very lucky that I work for a college where there was lots and lots of courses as well. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, both in terms of the trade of what it does um, as HR and also as the trade unions all had a big, you know, learning and lifelong learning agenda. Yeah. Um, so how did you feel sort of taking on those qualifications when, you know, you, you kind of obviously come out of education into work and you were kind of like, well, I'm done with that. And then someone says, oh, do you want to do this training course? I mean, were you, were you kind of enthusiastic about it or were you reticent? Like, um, So I wanted to do a CIPD, if I'm being honest, mm. wanted to do a CIPD at the time because everybody had a CIPD mm. and on lots of job adverts, particularly in the UK, it says you've got to have a CIPD. Mm. Um, and that's why I did it. Um, I'm lucky that um, I am, what's the phrase I want to use? I've always been fairly academic. Um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm looking and that kind of thing comes easily to me, which it doesn't for a lot of people. What I did make me think was, oh my gosh, I've never had to like do a list of references. How do I write an essay like this? Mm. Like, um, you know, critically evaluate this and whatever else that I'm thinking. Not done anything like this. They were you know, at school writing a, uh, some kind of history and say so. Having to get back into all of that um, was was a bit of a shift in mindset. Mm. Um, I both of the um, both the level seven CMI and the level five um, CIPD. I did them both remotely. Yeah. Um, you know you can you know do it when you want as long as you've got your assignments in by this day. And very much rather than it being um, a classroom mm. um, exercise. Um, I think there's lots of benefits to that. I work well when I can control my own time. Um, but what it did mean was that, just as we've talked about when we've talked about remote working, that you can't sit in a room and talk about HR theories or, or leadership theories and learn from other people's um, experiences or horror stories um, because you don't have that that sat in a classroom with other people going through that same journey, yeah. um, uh, which is one thing I lost from that. It's like um, if I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn a, a bit of Maltese at the moment on mm. on an app, but as I'm doing it on an app, there's nobody here to hear the absolute butchery that I'm making of these words. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to learn and grow from other people's knowledge and experiences. And <laughs> uh, um, the level seven I did through the the CMI, the leadership and management one, I did as part of a, a scheme through the college when I was working there for middle yeah. managers. Um, that's part of their you know trajectory they have. Um, for people on the career path. And while that was remote, there were some workshops that we did remotely, but all together, which was was really beneficial. Um, and it made me feel like I wasn't alone looking at this, <laughs> yeah, all these theories. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I have, I have embraced it, but what I would say is, uh, I'm not in any way knocking the, um, the CIPD qualification for anybody out there, um, but don't do a qualification just because you feel you have to. Yeah. 
unless it is something that's absolutely crucial for the role. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, because you're not going to get as much from that. I much prefer the leadership and management one because it's something I really wanted to do. Yeah. And I got a lot more out of it. Yeah. So, I mean, the question basically is who, who should pay for it? Um, so I was going to ask you, you, you know, did you, did you have to fund them or any of them yourself or did, do you get work support with them? Um, so I paid for my CIPD, um, because I was maybe redundant and I had the money. I thought, right, well, I'm going to invest in my career. Um, but you know, would my employer have paid for it in time? Probably yes. Mm. Now you've got the double-edged sword on one hand, you want the, the, um, your staff to have the tools, knowledge, and experience, and qualifications mm-hmm. to make them the best they can be. On the other hand, you've got well, what if we pay for someone to do a qualification and they leave? Yeah, um, you've got a mix of both. Um, most organisations I've worked for have put that we'll pay for it, but you've got to stay with us, otherwise we'll make you pay it back. Yeah, uh, clause in it. Um, it's it, I think it's a mix of both, isn't it? Mm. Um, not all organisations are in a position to be able to. Um, fund qualifications mm. on the other hand should i see it as an investment in myself you know I paid for you know mm. let's say i went to university well i paid for my own degree so mm. why is this any different it's six and mm. one and half a dozen of the other mm. um but i think there's certainly a positive engagement piece you know it's brilliant if my, my employer wants to invest in my future mm. it's going to make me want to do more for that organization that oh, yeah, but yeah. um will will absolutely be there so yeah yeah but I mean, it's, it's, it, it then comes down to the reasons of why people leave and, you know, they're sort of, what if, what if I train them and they leave? It's like, what if you don't train them and they stay, yeah. you know, it's the flip side of that. It's like, well, you Absolutely. have a whole bunch of people who are around, but they don't have any of the talent or skills that you need. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, you know, uh, there's a big piece on, you know, I'm all about internal progression and growing your own. Mm. Well, okay. You know, the, we want, you know, agile project managers or whatever the, the mm. thing is, um, well, why don't we skill some of our people? Then why don't we develop them and grow our own? And they, you know, they understand our brand, they understand our organization, they understand all of that. Mm. Why would we not want to give them the skills so they can do it rather than mm. getting, you know, Jim Biscuit in externally? Yeah. Well, and as well, mm. I mean, I can understand the need to, like, you do need to bring in new blood. There are a lot of places yeah. that are kind of, yeah, we, we really encourage it. it like internal development and so on and we promote people up through the ranks and everything but they can become quite staid because they're not getting new ideas in and new ways of working and they're not being challenged and they're not having to adapt as often um and then other places where it's like well we just get new people in all the time and it's like yeah but you you've no core knowledge because everything is being lost you're just training people up in how you work here they're staying here for six months to get it on their CV and then they're moving on to their next, you know, increment up. Yeah. And I think, you know, other than taking um, salary and, and the argument around a fair day's pay, uh, fair wage for a fair day's work, all of that kind of piece out of it. If you pay for someone to do a qualification and then they leave, they're not leaving because you paid them to do the qualification. Yeah. Theoretically, they should want to stay. There will be another factor as to why they are leaving. Exactly. Now, don't get me wrong. It may well be that salary is a driver and, you know, that's mm. always going to be the case. No matter how much you're paid, there'll always be someone in some company somewhere who will pay you more. Mm. But there is probably another reason why they're leaving. Mm. Because theoretically, they should want to stay because you might invest in something else. Then, you know, they've got a higher paid position. So it's what actually, if you unpick it, is the reason why they're leaving. Mm. And it's not because you paid for their qualification. Mm. 
Oh, no, as well, I think it comes down to why did they apply in the first place to a degree? It's like, have they applied to this position out of desperation because they really needed a, a job and it's like, this is just something that meets their skill set? Or is this something that they're really interested in doing and something, you know, a company that they want to work for? Like, do they have genuine interest in this position or is this position just like something to keep them afloat? Yeah. But, you know, you but you also don't want to be sort of spying on every person who comes and applies to a job just to make sure but i need to know everything about you and that you're the right fit yeah you know and then the day argument of you know and i hear it all the time and i'm sure you will have oh you know oh well this person's really good but he's overqualified and he'll leave in six months mm. i hear that all the time you know mm. like you know and, and it could be like it's there that he's just left another job he hated his previous employer and so he's just mm. taking this job or whatever the reasons are mm. i hear that all the time well actually this person, on the other hand, might really like this organisation and go, you know what, mm. I'm going to start from here and work, you know, it's, yeah, double-edged sword again. It's very mm. difficult when making people decisions. Yeah, well, I, I, I have this whole thing that I've come about to recently. I've really kind of, I think the whole recruitment process is just completely broken on a lot of levels. Um. Because, you know, you had that period in time where every role was getting hundreds and hundreds of applications. And then obviously you can't sort of really deal with that properly and process them all properly. And then and it takes extra time and so on. And then you have organizations where they've been, you know, they've been looking for people in a specific role for months or even years. And then they'll, you know, they'll bring in a temp or they bring in somebody else or they find that person. And it's like, oh, we've finally got someone for this role and they last a day. Oh, yeah. and then they've got someone who's temping, who's been doing it for six months because, but then they can't just get them because they have to pay a finder's fee. Like all of these sort of, it, it seems like it's become really difficult just to kind of get the right people into the right roles now. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I mean do, do you find that a lot of the HR processes and stuff, are they, are they, are they really effective? Or do you think a lot of them are kind of things that have worked somewhere that then other people have adopted? I mean, what's your what's your take on the kind of recruitment side of it? So I don't I don't think things work particularly well. I think um, on one hand, it's made difficult for recruiters because um, having the internet means that I can apply for a thousand jobs in an hour if I want to. Yeah. <laughs> and on one hand, you're like, well, you've got to fairly weird every application, but just as you've highlighted, I've got hundred applications. Mm. Um, on the other hand, I've worked in organisations where everyone's been, you know, told they've got to write, you know, an extended cover letter and fill in all of these questions as part of it. People are spending hours on these applications, never to hear anything back. Mm. That's not fair either. Mm. Um, the recruitment processes in most organisations I've worked for don't work very well. I think. Um, some of our interview processes are very outdated as well. Not everybody performs the best in those kind of environments. Mm. Um, I'm not really answering your question there. But, no, no, I mean, it's but great. But my observation is very much the same as you, that it's not working, unfortunately. I don't have a solution, but what yeah. we have in most organisations doesn't work, isn't fit for purpose. And the amount of recruiting managers I have conversations with and they go, well, um, you know, Jim's not ready for that role yet. Fine, I, mean, I get that. But we're, we're now going to spend the next 18 months recruiting for someone, by which time we could have probably, you know, just trained him a bit of a secondment and done some yeah. training and, and whatever else. Or like you say, got a temping or a contractor at a, a jillion pounds a day that we can't ever afford to take on permanently. Mm. And he's filling a stock gap. But meanwhile, we could have used that money to invest in 
in, in the people that we've got who are yeah. going to stay, who are doing something for us. Um, you know, I see horror story invoices, but, you know, agency invoices. And you just think yeah. we could have invested this money in our people. Yeah. Or they, or they get someone in. It's like, oh, we've got the, you know, a department goes, right, well, we need more money. We need more capacity. We're not entirely sure how much capacity we need, but we need more. So yeah. they go, they get the budget for a temp or whatever. They get a temp in and there's like a day's work. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, oh, we want you for three months doing like a day's work a week. So you come in for one day's worth of work and then you stay for an extra four days, twiddling your thumbs, trying not to be bored, trying not yeah. to feel useless. <laughs> it's like, why am I here? Yeah. I could just be getting paid for the one day and do something else. So, yeah, yeah it's... And people don't, and, you know, and I understand that, you know, just like you said, I've been in lots of those courses, we need more capacity, what, just capacity, just something. Mm. And... Yeah, we get the wrong people in, mm. um, or someone in management. When actually, what we need is some people here doing the admin work. That's where all the, the time and effort is being used, mm. and then we can free up people further up in our structure to do the things that they should be doing. Mm. Um, but yeah, lots of conversations like that. Well, yeah, and then a lot of these places they won't they won't look at the process. It's like, well, maybe the issues with some of the processes. Review the processes, get them sorted out, streamline them however you need to do. Can you free up capacity by doing things differently or by yeah. doing things more effectively? Or is all of your capacity going to doing things more efficiently and more effectively at, you know, the top level or just, you know, on the front line rather than trying to do it around the company? Yeah. Um... <laughs> and I remember this very conversation with, the, yeah, one of the UK employers. And so I said, so we're like, oh, we're busy. We're so busy. We've got all of this work. And they're like, well, what work? Quantify it for me. Mm. But they actually had no way of quantifying what the work was. No, they don't know. They just what, know what they're busy. What kind of queries are you getting? You know, what, you know, what the top, no idea. Well, are we going to find a way to log in so we can go, oh, actually, maybe if you did an FAQ about, I don't know, maternity pay, then you wouldn't be getting hundreds and hundreds of queries about it. Mm. But as nobody could quantify what it was they were doing, they were just doing it. Mm. Lots of it. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to see where the return on, you know, return on that effort is, Ian. But it or goes into working. Yeah, it goes into busy work, doesn't it? It's, it's just like you you just have to, we're, we're very busy here. So everyone be busy and keep being busy. So, like, well, shouldn't we look at that business and see how much of it is just busy work and how much of it is like actually earning us money or, you know, how much is expenditure <laughs> that we don't need to, to spend and so on. But again, you need the capacity to be able to do that. So look at all of that. Yeah, do all of that continuous improvement stuff and make everything better. I mean, would you agree that a lot of those sort of things, they're the kind of things that they have to be built in at the ground floor, like your, your green stuff, your inclusion stuff, your like improvement stuff and development stuff. Like they have to be kind of, embedded from the beginning because if you're trying to stick them onto an older business that's like yeah. used to working in particular ways it's like well how does this fit with us yeah uh, like you know and that's you know the lovely idea and all these other new startups can do that and i think you can embed it in an organization that's been there for a long time the only thing is it's not going to happen overnight you're not going to yeah, send yeah. out three emails about you know recycling and it's all yeah. going better it's going to take years you know, yeah. and I've talked to people about culture. It, it takes years to enact a proper cultural change. Yeah. It can't just be done overnight. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think some things get lost along the way because we're all, like you said, very busy. Yeah. 
Mm. Um, and so we've all got this great thing, but that's a long, a lot of commitment. And I think, you know, some of these things get lost, not because people don't want to, or people aren't interested. Mm. So, but yeah, I think it just, it takes a really long time to build all of that. End, and that to become part of the identity of an organization that actually we've got a really strong green agenda, you know, mm. that we're, you know, all about equality and diversity and inclusion. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much done with my questions, but I'm, I am going to just sort of uh, go into a question about the unions. Yep. Um, so mainly about your experience with them. So if you have been in a union, if you've been asked to be in a union and then um, when you've interacted with them, how those interactions have been, have they been, I mean, it, I suppose it depends on why the interaction is happening of yeah. how that interaction is going to go. But I mean, what, what's your, what's your experience been of them? So I have two of the organizations I've worked for have had a very strong trade union presence. And one of them was an absolutely fantastic relationship with the trade union. And mm. um, we had someone employed on site, but then a rep on site. And that was her job. She worked for the trade union. And when it, because the relationship was so good and so many of our staff members were part of the trade union, if anything was happening, whether it be something reactive, i.e. we might be, we might have to suspend some whatever else, we would go down and we would engage with them right from the word go. Mm. And they might have obviously different opinions and obviously what is the right thing for their, their member from their point of view. But in terms of, could we go in a room and have a really honest conversation, think, right, what are we going to do? What is going to be the best thing for this member slash employee? Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. Really collaborative. Um, yes, obviously there were some challenging conversations and, you know, whatever else, but it was, it was fantastic. And mm-hmm. I was very spoiled by that because I then thought that all of my interactions with the trade union would be just <laughs> as positive. What made that relationship work really well was that there wasn't a them and us feel. Yeah. You know, we were all working for the same purpose, even if it might not seem like it because I'm going to put, you know, you know, 20 employees at risk and it might not feel like we're working for the same purpose in terms of yeah. we were all on the same page. Mm. Whereas the other um, interactions I have had with the trade union in another organisation, um, there was very them and us right from the get-go it didn't matter mm. what we were trying to do um which was difficult and the fact is that they were again still trying to do the right thing for their members that was never under question it was just that hr and, and trade unions were never seemed to be seemed to be on the same page which mm. made it difficult to do things or enact change or positive change sometimes mm. um but i've met lots of really really fantastic trade union uh, representatives over the years um you know, who I've had friendships with both in and out of work and worked really collaborative with and some very uh, sort of 80s shouting, screaming, carrying on conversations as well. And you're going to get that in any industry. You could say that about HR professionals. There's plenty of us who like a good shout and scream too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think um, a trade union um, can be a really, really positive thing for an organisation. It shouldn't be seen as a, oh gosh, it needs all of our employee haters because they want to be part of a trade union. That's mm-hmm. absolutely categorically not the case. Yeah. Um, and like when I was talking before about um, green agendas and things, you know, brilliant, the trade union work with us on that, you know, the more the merrier um, in that respect. So I'm certainly not against it. Um, but yeah, I've had some very positive, some not so positive interactions, I think would be uh, mm. uh, my piece on it. But yeah, people want to join a union, crack on big organisation or any organisation, if you do want to be, you know, recognise, you know, see if it's something you can do, see if it's something your employees want. I, can, yeah. I only really see it as a good thing, which um, 
not all HR professionals have that same point of view. No, I mean, well, there's, you know, you, you, there can be the cynical take of, well, HR is just a way of companies of getting rid of unions because it's like, oh, well, you don't need that because we have this entire department which will take care of all of your grievances and stuff. And it's like, yeah, but they're paid for by you. <laughs> so they're, they're going to have your opinion and not my opinion. So, yeah, it's, it's like, but then unions have done themselves a lot of misfavors as well in terms of, and, and people who have joined unions where, um, you know, the, the branch is rubbish or the local organizers rubbish and they can't be bothered. And, and then they get disillusioned because it's like, well, they're not doing anything for me or they join just before a grievance of like, well, I'm going to get a union now. It's like, well, at yeah. this point, you more need an employment lawyer than a union. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's the piece there, isn't it? You know, it's why you would join a union. Is it because you're in trouble or is it because actually you want to look at all of the wider benefits of being part of a union and all all of that and mm. like you, you hit the nail on the head there. And mm. um, we used to, particularly with the, uh, the unions that we, um, you know, recognise, we used to say, you know, have an agreement that they wouldn't sign someone up, you know, in the throes of an investigation. Yeah. Austin did, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, but you know, there are, if you've got a good relationship there, the amount of um, things I've been able to de-escalate because the trade union's gone, you know, HR out there to get you. They want to make sure that what we're doing is fair. Yeah. And being able to de-escalate that. Whereas obviously there's been some trade unions um, representatives who've promised their member of the world, yeah. I'll get you off this, don't you worry about it. HR out to get you. They're all, you know, it swings and roundabouts, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But a lot of it comes down to the individuals. Yeah. Like anything. Um, I suppose, and again, it comes down to, you know, that individual trade union representative. Um, I suppose the only bugbear I have when it comes to employee relations processes is when we're trying to delay things because uh, that will always be, in my opinion, not of the best interest of the employee. Yes. Yeah. You know, having something hanging over you is not great. But, but other than that, no, I've, I've generally, uh, in the main, had fairly good experiences. I am very lucky. I mean, the the other thing I would say on that front with sort of the, the union involvement, like when I've been in places where they have gone through like takeovers or buyouts or like big redundancies, um, I think, I think it can be beneficial if I know there'd be a lot of business residents to kind of have the union there and but i think it can be easier because rather than everyone having you know rather than having several hundred or several thousand different grievances complaints disgruntlements and like this is wrong or you've got that right they're organizing it together they're coming to a consensus view which is then kind of you know represented up to someone so it's it's like rather than having to deal with two thousand people you have to deal with 10 people yeah. and i think that's probably beneficial in a lot of ways and especially in terms of actually getting something good out of it at the end yeah but yeah you know i've always tried to where i can foster a good relationship with the trade unions like i say just diffusing things before they start you know yeah. if, the, if the trade union rep can be up and go actually jim biscuits come to see me and he's not happy about this what's the what's the background what's the situation yeah. before it's that let's go in at a formal grievance and do a full bells and whistles yeah. Not that that isn't appropriate sometimes, because it obviously is, mm. but actually just having that open dialogue rather than, you know, just going and all, all guns blazing can be very helpful. Well, that's it. And as well over time, you know, you, you get to see, you've, you've seen these things happen before, mm. you know, you, things, 
they repeat, don't they? And it's like, okay, well, I know where this is going. And you also know, like you said before, sometimes you can just do a quick intervention and it would be sorted. But if there's something in the way of that, you know exactly where that's going to go. It's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I've had a conversation with a trade youth country farm and I've looked at this. This is probably going to go one way. What if, you know, Jim was to resign tomorrow, which pain is notice, you know? Yeah. Not say that kind of thing happened all the time, but the trade union representative felt able to come and have that conversation rather yeah. than, you know, and do the right thing for their member yeah. uh, because of their experience, knowledge, et cetera. Yeah. And if you've got that good relationship as well, you can have kind of, okay, here's the position. And also <laughs> off the record. <laughs> yeah, off the record. We're not saying that Jim's definitely going to get in fact, but... <laughs> It you know, and, on like you know it's, and it's just the right thing for people. Um, <laughs> but yeah, whereas obviously as HR, I can't go waltz in the room and say, Jim, look. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, you've been an absolute tear away. <laughs> uh, so. so the moral of the story is don't hire Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just don't ever hire Jim. <laughs> so yeah. Um, so yeah, but I have been, I have been very lucky. I met some lovely trade union people over the years. And some not so lovely as well. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to record me saying that, but yeah, definitely. The screen. No, I said I said that for you. Know, emails, you know, <laughs> regional representatives sending you know, angered emails at three in the morning, carrying on. Uh, but I mean, all very lovely, wonderful people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've I've pretty much done my questions now, unless I've dropped one that I've forgotten about. Um. So is there anything that you, you want to kind of talk about, touch on, um, before we wind it up? Is there anything that you want to promote or like? Um, interesting. Uh, no, not really. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting saying all of this out loud. Mm. Um, cause you know, you sort of think of your profession over the years, but generally I only talk to about, about it to other HR people though obviously you've got your knowledge there too but I mean just generally speaking so um, yeah it's been it's interesting thinking about it as we've been having this conversation Good. um as well as my one uh, my my final thought uh, my conclusion of being a HR professional if you just said what's the number one thing you've learned mm. is to certainly not judge a book by its cover generally people are not underperforming or being an absolute five star just for the sake of it just because they're terrible people Mm. Um, there is generally something more to it. So when Jim rocks up drunk, um, which he did, um, or all of the other things, there, there may well be more to the story than meets the eye. And so, yeah, mm. always to approach things with an open mind. I have certainly learned over the years because I've, you know, yeah. That, 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 will, that will be my final takeaway. In any situation to any people managers out there. I suppose it, it works the other way as well in that, you know, when people are performing, and performing really well there are reasons for that as well yeah you know it's not just that oh you know everything's going wrong for a reason for this person um you know everything goes right for you for a reason as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> and we all know that from living life <laughs> yeah like... and it's interesting you say that because like i said right at the beginning of all of this you know we don't talk about the good things we just talk about the bad mm. and right there i've gone well people are being bad for a reason and you've absolutely turned it on my head then right <laughs> people are sometimes being good for a reason too and you are absolutely right well, maybe a more grim reaper than i think <laughs> <laughs> don't don't get jaded by the industry <laughs> <laughs> no i don't honestly i find it endlessly fascinating like i said um you know 
with the things that happen and, you know, different people's lives and cool. how organisations and people react to different things. Yeah. And so fascinating. Thank you again to Rachel for being my guest. Thanks again to all my guests. And thanks to you, Leeds, for being my subject. And of course, most of all, thanks to you, my dear listener. Come back next week to hear me talk to a film programmer. Okay, that's me. Cheers, ears. Take care out there and be kind to each other, Leeds. If you're listening to this, I assume you have some connection to Leeds, like living here or being from here. If you're such a person in Leeds or from Leeds and you haven't done your recording for working hours yet, then don't wait. Email me now, right now. Quick, get a pen. Workinghourspod at western-studios.com. If you fancy being my guest, put guest in the subject line of your email and add a short bio in the message. Stick in some suggestions of your availability and I'll send you a release form and a Zoom invite. If you'd like to be on working hours, I will need a two-hour window for us to record in. I can record in your work time or during your downtime. I have been recording interviews for working hours for every year on Zoom, but I can also record offline. You can appear on Working Hours anonymously, or you can promote yourself and or your company or brand, cleaner or owner. What is your experience? How do you feel about work? What do you like and not like? What do you do, Leeds? Be a part of local history. Have your voice heard. Share your wisdom. Give us the inside skinny. This is your show, Leeds, and it's all about what you make of yourself. Do you know what you're doing? If you do, then come and tell me all about it. Come on Working Hours, even if you don't know what you're doing. I certainly don't. Email me right now. Quick, get a pen. WorkingHoursPod at western-studios.com. If you're allowed to do that, that is. If you're not allowed to do that, then tell me why. If you and your business aren't ashamed of what you do, then let's hear all about it. What good are you doing the rest of us? Are you socially useful? Am I? Is this? Send your feedback, questions, comments, and queries right now to WorkingHoursPod at western-studios.com. What is happening, Leeds? Find out by following this show on Twitter at Working Hours 3 and on Instagram at Working Hours Pod Leads to find out when new episodes are going to be released. Or just use the hashtag hash Working Hours Pod Leads on either of those sites to find me. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Western underscore studios underscore leads. I'm also on LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Simon hyphen Treen. Treen is T R double E N. Or you can go to my company page, which is linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Western hyphen studios. If you want to make a podcast in Leeds, whether it's for a cause, a publicity campaign, a product promotion, or your own passion project, then get in touch with me, Western Studios, for support, advice, and guidance on anything podcasts. At Western Studios, you work with a real life lawyer who is actually in Leeds, who you can actually work with on making podcast content. So don't wade through articles and videos and podcasts about how to make podcasts. Just get on with it. Western Studios can make your podcast with you or even for you. Western Studios can take on your podcast boring, time-consuming and painful admin, recording, editing, transcription, whatever. Tell me about it. I feel your pain. For a charge, I'll share it. Writers, what are you doing with your lives? Hopefully you're writing. Well, I know there are listeners out there who want to hear great original writing performed as audio content and made in Leeds. How do I know this? Because I'm one of them. Help me make Muck for Brass, a series of short stories, poems, performers, whatever, all published as podcast content. 
is your work arty, salacious, pulpy, strange, good. I want to make it a podcast. I get practice making the show and you get a finished, performed and published version of your writing. Businesses, campaigns, brands, got an inkling that you'd like a podcast but don't know where to start. Hit me up at makemypodcast at western-studios.com and we'll start making your podcast straight away. The first hour of arranged consultation and pre-production time is free. So what do you have to lose? And what are you waiting for? Save yourself the hassle and the headache and make your podcast with a Leeds-based, in real life, podcast producer, that's me, Western Studios Leeds. Once again, please let working hours get big and strong by joining its Patreon Support working hours by becoming a champion on Patreon for a pound a month. You can inspire me and motivate me with a membership and maybe one day even be helping to cover all my costs. You can chat to me there and see me do a monthly live stream where again you can chat to me all about the show and God do I need to find someone to actively share this project with. Go to patreon.com forward slash working hours pod right now and sign up please. And or go to Kofi, that's ko com forward slash working hours and join me there for a pound a month and get access to the working hours discord and chat to me there i will be putting up additional material on kofi once there are any members there please do remember to like share follow and subscribe to this show every little bit helps tell your gran tell your housekeeper tell your gardener tell your parole officer tell your boss tell leads and i'll see thee next time our kid Working Hours is presented, edited, and recorded by Simon Treem for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org.